We're continuing our, our series, Songs of Our Savior. We're looking at the, um, some of the most beloved Christmas hymns and looking at theology behind it. Last week, I talked to an older gentleman that came up to me. He said, Matt, I've been coming to church my whole life. He was 70-something years old. He said, I've been coming to church my whole life, and I've been singing those songs my whole life. And he said, I've, I've never really understood what a lot of it meant. I've never thought about what the words meant. And he says, this year has been so good for me. This series has been so good for me because as I've learned the meaning of the words, it has brought me to a place of worship that I've never experienced before. And that's what this is all about. That happened for me about 25 years ago. And I was in my first year working with Chris Tomlin and he and I were working together at a church and, and Chris was the first person I'd ever seen to really take these words and these songs and form them into something that I worship through. And I realized that as I thought about the words, these amazing words of these amazing songs, that it drew me near to Jesus in a way that I really had never experienced before because I thought about what Christmas actually meant. And so that's our hope for you today, that today when we sing at the end of the service, that it wouldn't just be singing the words, but that we would worship and draw near to Jesus in a powerful way. So today, we're looking at the hymn, Heart the Herald Angels Sing. And um, I think it rivals O Holy Night as one of the most theologically rich songs that's ever been written, not just a Christmas song. It was originally written in the 1700s by a guy named Charles Wesley, who was the brother of John Wesley, the famous theologian. And Charles wrote, they think about 6,000 hymns throughout his life. And why he wrote hymns were pretty interesting. I did not know this, but it makes a lot of sense. And you see, back in the 1700s, there was no internet, you know? I mean, obviously, there were no such thing as public libraries at this point. A lot of people, most people actually were poor, and so they didn't have access to um, theological books, theological training. And so Wesley wrote these hymns with the primary intention of not just writing songs that the church could sing, but he wrote these hymns so that the normal everyday person, the poor and the literate, could have access to sound doctrine and theology, which is pretty cool. If you've ever wondered, like, why the old hymns are so rich and how some of the new songs aren't, that's why. I mean, we're, we're going to sing a line here in a minute. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with men. In flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. That is rich theology. And I want to get to the bottom of that today. Week number one of our series, we, we uh, went through O Come Emmanuel. We talked about the, the longing of the human soul for God because for generations we waited and we waited for God to show up and how one of the reasons that, that God came to us was to be a longing satisfier, to meet the deepest longings of our souls. In week number two, we looked at O Holy Night and we talked about how Jesus wasn't just a longing satisfier, but he's a soul valuer. We camped out on that amazing line, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. And we looked at how the birth of Christ is arguably the greatest event in human history. And yet incredibly, the first people that God chose to tell of the greatest event 
in human history. When a king, when a religious leader, the very first group of people that God chose to tell the greatest event in human history was a group of absolute nobodies in the eyes of the world. It was just some random shepherds out in the flock. They had no power. They had no influence. And God came to them first and said today, in the city of David has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we talked about how the only possible explanation for why in the world God would do that is to show them and show you and show me that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you matter to God. And he values you as an individual person and loves you and knows you more than your wildest imagination. Last week, we looked at the second verse of O Holy Night and how God isn't just a longing satisfier. Christ isn't just a soul valuer, but he's also a chain breaker. And Jesus said, that's why I came. Came to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set free all who are oppressed. And we talked about how that first Christmas night was the beginning of the end of all oppression. That first Christmas night was the beginning of the end of all of our physical and spiritual chains that bind us. And now today, we're gonna look at Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And this song is gonna remind us of something that Jesus came to this planet to do. Now I want you to listen. Reminds us of something that Jesus came to this planet to do that's just as important if not more important, is there anything else we've talked about? And that yes, Jesus is a longing satisfier, and yes, he's a soul valuer, and yes, he's a chain breaker, but maybe most miraculous of all, Jesus Christ is a sin forgiver. He's a sin forgiver. This message, by the way, I wanna warn you, is really simple. It's really straightforward. Guys, I... and. And every sermon, I always try to at least tell some story, you know, to kind of help you feel the truth. And, or I, you know, I try to at least be humorous in some shape, form, or fashion. I got no cool stories and I got no humor in this. All this is is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all I got today. And then we're going to do communion. We're going to do the Lord's Supper. Because I want you to think about the reality of the most important thing Jesus came to do, which is to be a sin forgiver which is the greatest need of the human soul. All right, so let's jump in and, um, and let's look at this together. Let's look at the first line of the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It says, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I'm willing to bet that most of you in the room have never stopped for one second or two seconds or a minute to think about what that line means. Hark the Herald angels sing. And the reason I bet you've never thought about it is because I've never thought about it, what it actually means. And what it means is kind of cool. The word hark is an old English word that means, hey, listen up. I like that. I think we need to bring that word back. <laughs> y'all ever, how many of y'all got kids in here? You know, when they're running around, you're trying to talk to them, they're not listening to you. How could, would, cool would it be to just yell them, hark, right? And they're just like, they stop. <laughs> I love that. I, th I think my next dog, I'm going to name him Hark. Listen up. And then it says, hark, the herald. I'm sorry, guys, I'm coughing. What's a herald? A herald is a proclamation or an official message of good news. It's a declaration of good news. And so now you know what that means. Hey, listen up to this official declaration of good news. And what is this good news? What is this declaration of good news that we need to listen up to 
Here it is. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. And here it is. God and sinners reconciled. Let those words rest on you today. God and sinners reconciled. Those words and those words alone ought to move you to worship. Those four words and those four words alone ought to be enough for us just to stop the sermon right there and start worshiping God. Get on our knees, hands in the air, tears falling down our face and singing to him at the top of our lungs because it's the greatest news that's ever been told and that is Christmas night was the beginning where God said, I'm coming to you so that you and I can be reconciled back into a relationship. God and sinners reconciled. And here's the thing. Those four words speak to a need in our lives, in our souls. Yes, all of us in this room, we need a longing satisfier. We need someone to meet the deepest longings of our soul because this world will never do it. All of us need a, a soul valuer. We need to realize that we we matter, and we just don't matter to people, but we matter to the God of the universe. So we need a, lot, we, we need a, we need a soul value, and my goodness, we need a chain breaker. I don't know about you, but I got some. And I love that Jesus came to be a chain breaker, but there is one need that we have. There's one need that we have that surpasses all the other needs we have in our life, and that is our need for a sin forgiver. It's the greatest need of the human soul. There's a story. Matter of fact, let's turn there. Luke chapter five, verse 18. If you've got a Bible, that's great. If not, I'll have it on the screen. <clears throat> Luke chapter five, verse 18. Jesus, cool story. Jesus actually talks about how the forgiveness of sin is the greatest need of the human soul. Interesting story. Let me set it up. There was a guy that was paralyzed. Couldn't walk. I think he might've been paralyzed for life. And they'd heard Jesus was a healer. He and his buddies heard that there was this guy that was healing people that were paralyzed. And so they came up with a plan. They're going to bring him to Jesus. Well, that particular day, Jesus was in a house and he was preaching. They used to speak and gather in an upper room. And so they tried to get to Jesus. They couldn't because the place was packed. So they hatched an idea. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take our buddy. We're going to get him up on the roof. We're going to cut a hole in the roof. And we're going to lower this guy down to the feet of Jesus so we can get to him. Which, my goodness, that'd be... Good to have buddies like that, right? So let's read this. It says in Luke 5, 18. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And so again, this is amazing. They get to the top of the roof, cut a hole in the roof, and then lower him in. But I want you to stop and think about something for just a second. I want you to think about what life would have been like for that paralyzed guy at that time and that age. But you think about how frustrating and humiliating that would have been. This is before wheelchairs. And so here's a guy who can't get anywhere by himself. He has to be tended to 24 hours a day. If he wants to go anywhere, somebody's got to pick him up 
and take him. And so I want you to imagine the frustration and the humiliation that this poor guy must have felt his entire life. And I want you to think about this. If you were to come up and ask that paralyzed guy, sir, what is your greatest need in your life? What do you think he would say? I guarantee you he'd say what you and I would say. He'd say the greatest need in my life is I am paralyzed and I need to walk. I'm tired of being carried around. I'm tired of the humiliation. I'm tired of being needy. The greatest need in my life is to not be paralyzed. And yet when his friends lower him down to Jesus, Jesus actually shows this man and reveals to us that this guy had a bigger need. He had a greater need than just to walk. I'm gonna show this to you. I've set the scene real fast. You know, this is kind of funny to think about. I've always tried to imagine the scene, but Jesus is up in the upper room. He's teaching, he's doing his thing. He hears some rumbling on the roof and so he keeps teaching and, and all of a sudden he hears some rumbling again and all of a sudden he looks up and there's some dust coming down from the ceiling. And so he's just like, what is that? And he keeps teaching and all of a sudden a hand comes through the roof. I imagine Jesus stopped everybody and was like, let's check this out. And these, these hands start pulling away the tiles and the roof. So all of a sudden there's this big hole and then all of a sudden these guys on a rope start lowering this bed down at the feet of Jesus. Jesus realized he's paralyzed and Jesus says something to him. And I want you to pay attention to the first thing that Jesus says to this guy. Luke 5, 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Think about that for a second. First thing out of Jesus' mouth was not, hey, I see your faith. And so you're healed of being paralyzed. First thing out of Jesus' mouth is, hey, I see your faith and your sins are forgiven. Now I'm guessed, I'm guessing that the paralyzed guy in that moment who's gone to all that trouble, who probably tried to talk his buddies out of doing it, because he's like, I'm gonna look like an idiot coming through a roof for crying out loud, goes to all that trouble, swallows his pride, humbles himself, allows himself to be dropped down through a ceiling at the feet of Jesus. Jesus looks at him and says, hey, I see your faith, your sins are forgiven. I don't know about you, but if I'm that paralyzed guy, I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, um, you know, that's really kind of you and all. And I really deeply appreciate the fact that you just forgave my sins. I mean, that's amazing, that's awesome, Jesus. But I don't know if you've noticed Jesus, but I'm paralyzed. I love the fact you just forgave my sins, Jesus, but I, I've, I've got a bigger need. I need to walk. And here's the thing. Jesus did heal the guy. Just a couple of seconds later, Jesus says, yes, take up your mat and walk. And the guy did. The guy got up and was healed, picked his mat up and walked away. But everybody listen to me, everybody tune in. But before Jesus did that, before Jesus healed his body, he did something far more miraculous. Before Jesus healed his body, Jesus healed his soul. And Jesus was saying, that's intentional. Everything came out of mouth. Jesus' mouth was intentional. He was showing that guy, and he was showing me that you and I have two needs 
Yeah, we've got our physical needs, which seems so important, but there's a greater need that you and I possess. It's the greatest need of the human soul, and that is that our sin be forgiven and we be reconciled back into a relationship with God. All right, and that's what I, I love this song. I've always loved this song. I want to start actually paying attention to it because it speaks to that need. It speaks to how on that first Christmas night, that was the dawn of redeeming grace. As Silent Night just said, that was the night that God was making good on the promise that himself and us would be reconciled back into a relationship together. So let's talk about that. What does reconciliation mean? Keep talking about reconciled. God and sinners reconciled. What does that mean? Reconciliation means the restoration of a relationship. If, uh, if, uh, if you've got a relationship and, 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 and it's been broken, but then at some point it's restored back into its original place of peace and wholeness, that means that that relationship has been reconciled, okay? Um, ask you a question here. Have you ever uh, lost a relationship with someone? Have you ever had a relationship you're in be broken? Most of us have. Maybe it's a loved one, somebody you were good friends with, something happened, it caused a division between the two of you to the point where you couldn't be in a relationship anymore. Now listen, a lot of times that happens because there's some disagreement between you and somebody else and disagreement so much just can't be in a relationship anymore. But the majority of the time, the re reason that relationships are broken is because someone in the relationship sinned. Typically, that's what happens, is that sin breaks a relationship and it can't be reconciled. You got a marriage. Husband, unfaithful to his wife, cheats on his wife, and their relationship is broken because he's been unfaithful. Friendships are broken because one of the friends betrays the other. Business partnerships are broken because one of the partners did something that was untrustworthy. Relationships are almost always broken because one party in the relationship sins. Now, here's an important question. How are those relationships reconciled? How, how are they brought to that state of peace? How are they restored and reconciled? Relationships typically can only, listen to this, they can only be reconciled when the person that has sinned, when the person that's done the wrong, takes the step and pursues reconciliation with the person they have wrong. Um, the, the, the unfaithful husband leaves his adulterous relationship, comes to his wife, begs her forgiveness, turns from his sin, seeks reconciliation. She can forgive him and they can be restored and reconciled. If the betraying friend comes to the friend they betrayed and said, I betrayed you, it's never gonna happen again. Please forgive me. The betrayed person can forgive him and that relationship can be reconciled. That's the way this thing works. Re reconciliation is only possible if the person that's done the wrong, if the person that's committed the sin is willing to take the first step, repent of their sins, come and seek reconciliation. Guys, everybody look at me. That's always how it works except with our God. Except with our God, who the scripture says, that when you and I were the ones who had sinned, when you and I were the ones that were the offending party, when you and I were the ones that had done the wrong in the most loving act in the history of the world, God took the first step to pursue reconciliation with you and with me 
It's amazing. To get our minds around this real quick, um, theological question, don't shout it out. I've talked about it before. I know you listen to every word I say, and so you should know this. But um, here's the theological question. Why did God create you? Why do you exist? What's the meaning of life? People have been thinking about that forever, trying to answer that question. I'm about to tell you the meaning of life, the reason you exist, the reason God created you is to be in a relationship with him. He didn't have to create us. He was perfectly content with the Trinity, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit forever. He's good. He didn't, he didn't have to have us, but he chose to create us because he wanted us to know him and to love him, and he wanted to know you and love you. That's why you were created to be in a relationship with God. It's the meaning of life. But what happened? God created us. He put us in the garden. He's, he's experiencing this relationship with us. But what happened? We sinned. Adam and Eve sinned. They, they disobeyed God. They went their own way. Now, here's the thing. Because God is completely holy, he's completely and utterly righteous. Because man and woman sinned, that broke and that severed their relationship with God. God can't be in the presence of sin. And so when they sinned, it broke and severed the relationship. And the scripture teaches us that Adam and Eve's sin nature got passed down to every man and woman that has ever lived. And so when you, born in that sin nature, at some point in time you sinned, your relationship with God that you were created for because you're sinful and because he's holy, your relationship with God has also been severed. And you today need relationship, reconciliation with God. Every single one of us have to seek reconciliation from the Lord and receive it from the Lord. So let's take a second, actually. And just, to, just to prove that all of us have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God and broken our relationship with God, I want to just prove definitively that we've all sinned. And to do that, I want to talk about God's standards for a second. All right, he's the creator. Get your mind around this. He's the creator, right? Y'all with me so far? He's the creator and we're the created. And because he's the created or creator, he gets to set the rules. Y'all with me? Because he's the creator, he gets to say what's right. He gets to say what's wrong. He gets to say what's good. And he gets to say what's bad because he's the creator. He gets to set the standard and he did. He set the standard with the 10 commandments. And so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna walk through a couple of commandments and let's see how many of us have broken them. Y'all ready? We'll start with the first one. You shall have no other God before me. That's the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. That's God's standard. God's standard is to keep him first in our minds and our hearts at all times. So I actually want you to do this. I want you to raise your hand. If there's ever been a time in your life, where you, a moment in your life, where you have not placed God as first and foremost in your heart and in your mind, raise your hand. Okay, all of you, should have raised your hand. If you didn't, you broke the ninth commandment. Do not bear false witness. And so we're one end of this thing. <laughs> we're one thing in, we're one commandment in and we've all broken it. But let's just keep going to make sure. All right, you shall not make an idol. A similar to the first one, but, and you may be thinking, well, I've never like carved a golden calf or nothing, but an idol is anything that you give a greater worth to than the Lord. Anything that you worship more than you worship the Lord. And, 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 and look, we've all done that. We probably did it today at some point in time. Let's keep going. Number three, you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, you may have never said the GD word. That's part of it, but it's more than that. It means, it means not giving the name of God preeminence in your life, taking his name, but you don't place it first. We've all done it. 
Um, Number four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. If you've ever had a kid in soccer or club baseball, you break it all the time. You skip church and you go yell at an umpire. You hadn't kept it holy, so we've all probably broken that at some point. Honor your father and mother. Teenagers, you probably broke that this morning. If you've ever been a teenager for 12 seconds, you broke that one. So we're like five commandments in, and so far most of us have broken all of them. So let's do one that I read it and I was like, ah, finally. Number six, thou shalt not commit murder. Do not commit murder. You read that, you're like, yes, I've never murdered anybody. Praise God. But Jesus redefined it. And he said, hey, do not commit murder, but I want to let you know something. If you've ever been sinfully angry in your heart towards someone, you've committed murder with them in your heart. I mean, I did that yesterday. I had to repent of it. We all have done it. Y'all getting the point? Every single one of us has sinned and broken God's standard. And we hadn't just done it once. We've done it hundreds, maybe thousands of times in hundreds of ways. Now here's a question, guys. Is that a big deal? Is that a big deal that we just discovered that every single human being in this room has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Multiple times, multiple ways. The answer is yes. There's two reasons why it's a big deal. Number one, the scripture says that the payment or the wages of your sin is death. You just discovered that that you sinned and you broke God's standard. And the scripture says, because God is completely holy and completely righteous, because you've sinned, you broke his standard. What you earned is eternal death. Here's the second reason that your sin is a really big deal. Because the moment you committed that sin, your relationship with God that you were created for was broken. It created a distance between you and God. Again, he is so utterly, perfectly righteous. And so when you have sin on your record, you are now separated from God. Now, Ephesians 2.1 speaks to this reality of because of our sin, we've been separated from God. Ephesians 2.1, it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You weren't like, not doing well. You weren't just struggling in your trespasses and sins. You weren't just having a hard time in your trespasses and sins. The scripture says you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. You earned death. You've been separated from God. Unless somebody steps into the picture, you are a dead man walking in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, watch this, and were by nature children of wrath. Everybody look at me. Friends, unless your sin is forgiven, unless you are reconciled back into a relationship with God, you will die still in your sins and you will not enter heaven. And you will spend eternity separated from the God who created you in a place that Jesus said was not a good place. And that's where religion comes in. That's where religion comes in. We gotta be reconciled back to God. He's holy and we can't be in his presence unless we're holy. So what does religion do? Religion 
tries to make yourself holy so God will be pleased with you. That's, that's every religion in the history of the world, Islam, Mormonism, Hinduism, whatever it is. It's this idea that, yeah, I'm a sinner and God is holy, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work really, really, really hard to try to be good. I'm going to pull up my bootstraps and I'm going to do everything I can and I'm going to give all this effort and I'm going to strive so that maybe, just maybe, I can be good enough and holy enough so God will look at me and say, you're really holy, and I'll accept and God will accept them. But there's a problem with that. There's a problem with religion, trying really hard to be good, to please God. One, it's impossible. And two, the scripture tells us that on your holiest day, on your most righteous day, on the day that you crush it the best and walk the best, the best with God, the scripture says that, that, that our righteousness on our own is like filthy rags compared to the righteousness of God. Isaiah figured that out the hard way. I'm thinking that with the exception of Jesus, as you read the Bible, Isaiah might have been the holiest guy that ever lived. Isaiah was a baller. Old Testament prophet. This guy followed the law. He's a good dude. Did whatever God told him. Sacrificed. Gave it up for Jesus. He was a righteous, holy man. There's any, he might have been the most righteous guy that ever lived besides Christ. And one day, he found himself in the presence of God like in the presence of God. And what did he do? This holy, righteous guy was in the presence of God. And when he was, he hit the floor. And when he was in the presence of God, he said, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. Even the most righteous guy that's ever lived, when he gets in the presence of God, he realizes quickly just how sinful he is. And that's what Every religion in the world tries to do, this tries to be good enough to enter in the presence of God, but you can't do it. That's how every religion in the world works. That's how every faith in the world works, except our faith. Christianity is the story, listen. Christianity is the story of God turning this concept of reconciliation completely upside down. Christianity is the story of God who when we were still in our sin, when we didn't deserve it and we could never ever earn it, said, I'm gonna take the first step and I'm gonna make it possible for me and you to be reconciled. And to reconcile us back to him, guys, God did the unthinkable. <laughs> to make it possible for us to be reconciled, God did the unimaginable. 2,000 years ago, the all-powerful creator of the universe became a human embryo. Think about that. The God that had existed forever, outside of time, stepped into time, not as this king, but, but as a baby that grew slowly in the womb of a teenage girl. It's fascinating. And he was born the king of kings, the Lord of Lords was born as a baby, cold and crying into the world that for crying out loud, he created. And then as he grew up, he, do some, he did something that would be critical for our reconciliation. He never sinned. He never sinned. All the ways that you failed, he was obedient. All the ways that you fell short of the glory of God, 
He met the standard of God. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And then he did something even more unimaginable. The creator God of the universe, the one, the God that has existed forever, eternally, was born into this planet, lived a perfect life, and then willingly walked to a Roman cross and he died. Let that sink into your mind. The eternal God died and shed his blood so that you would be covered through the sacrifice of his blood and that through his sacrifice, your sin would be completely forgiven. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, we were still running. We were still disobeying. We were still rebelling. Christ died for us. Let that sink in. While you were still a sinner, you weren't seeking reconciliation. I wasn't seeking reconciliation. We were still in our sin. And we could never earn it. Jesus came and took your place. He took the punishment. You and I deserved. He died the death that you and I should have died. He paid the penalty for you that you and I owed. And when he did, watch what happened. When he did, watch what happened. Colossians 1.21, it says, and you, that's talking about us, and you who were once alienated, separated from God in our sin, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, watch this, has now been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Through his blood, through his sacrifice, through his death, we're reconciled back to God. We're made completely and holy and righteous in his sight. Our, Our relationship with God is reconciled. And so now when we die, we're gonna be able to stand before the Lord holy and blameless because of his death. And that's why when Jesus hung on the cross, last thing he said, before the eternal God of the universe breathed his last breath and died, the last thing he said was he cried out, it is finished. And it hit me one day. Jesus didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. What was finished? What was finished was the work of reconciliation between you and Almighty God. Hark the herald angels. The reason I love this song is because that's what it's all about. It's about that moment. It's about that precious moment in history when God left the comfort and the glory of heaven to meet the greatest need of the human soul. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconcile. It's amazing. Real quick, I'm almost done, but how do you do that? How do you, how do you receive this gift of reconciliation? Everybody look, I'm, I'm almost done. Hang with me. We've already learned that a relationship with God is the most important thing of our lives. That's why we're created. We've learned that we've sinned and we've broken that relationship with God. We've learned that Jesus came to this planet, shed his blood to provide a way for us to be reconciled with God. So let me ask you the most important question I'm gonna ask you today. How do you receive this gift 
of reconciliation. I'm gonna tell you real fast in Ephesians 2.8. It says, for grace, you have been saved. Everybody say the next two words with me. Through faith. That's it. Through faith. We've already discovered you can't work your way back to God. Can't be good enough. Can't follow all the rules. It's impossible. You'll never do it on your best day. Your righteousness will be like filthy rags. And so God says, I have this gift of reconciliation that I want to give to you today. I want to forgive your sins. And here's how you receive it through faith. Faith is believing God. It means trusting into the Lord. And so you may be sitting here thinking, man, Matt, wait a minute. Just a second here. Let's say for a second, I believe all this, that I've sinned. Dozens of times, dozens of ways, over and over and over again. And because I've sinned, I've earned eternal death and my relationship with God has been broken. But God's willing to forgive me of my sin. God's willing to restore me back into relationship with him, not by trying really hard to be good, but simply through faith for what Jesus did for me on the cross. Yes, that's it. That's it. And in the moment you believe, in the moment you believe and you trust into the shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the reconciliation of your relationship. The scripture says that in that moment, you are justified. Justified is a fancy word that means this. Just if I'd never sinned. Justified never sinned. The blood of Jesus makes you justified. The blood of Jesus makes it just if you'd never sinned. Makes you clean. And the moment you put your faith into Jesus, the warrant for your arrest is canceled. And the moment you trust in Jesus, the debt on your account is completely paid for. And the moment that you trust and believe in Jesus, your slate is made completely clean. Y'all ever seen an S sketch? It's like an X sketch. You're drawing on it and you try really hard to make it cool looking, but it's just a bunch of gobbledygook. But then you shake it and then the slate's completely clean. But what's amazing about it about this whole thing, this reconciliation with God and your slate being clean. God doesn't just clean your slate for all your past sins, but in the moment you trust in Jesus, he cleans your slate for all your future sins. And so now through Jesus, through the blood of Christ, who's justified you, he looks at you. The relationship has been reconciled. And so now when you enter back in through the blood of Christ into a reconciled relationship with God, when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin. Let that hit you today. The blood of Jesus takes your sin away and he no longer sees your sin. All he sees is a righteous, holy, reconciled, beloved son or daughter. If that doesn't make you worship, I don't know what will. Tells us so well what happens when we put our faith in God and reconcile to Christ. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth born to give them second birth. Jesus is a longing satisfier. It's true. You can go after all the stuff in the world you want to. It'll never fulfill the longings of your heart. He's a longing satisfier. Jesus is a soul valuer. <laughs> he loves you more than you could ever possibly imagine. He's a chain breaker. He's done it in my life. He can do it in yours. And maybe best of all, he's a sin forgiver. 
the sin forgiver. There is none like him. There is none like him. And I just don't know who could say no to a savior like that.